Well, that's a prayer we can all get behind and yell amen to. This past week, I heard a prayer that I wasn't happy with, and it was during the Republican National Convention. So unlike what I would normally do, I, I responded to this on Facebook. I, I believed what I was seeing was what I would term a, a reprehensible abuse of spiritual authority by a pastor. And, and so I ventured where I rarely do, which is to speak out about something, and it was particularly because it was a fellow minister. Uh, and as you can imagine on Facebook, you get all kinds of polite dialogue in response to your posting. Uh, it was both interesting and heartbreaking to see people's responses. And I learned again what James has said to us for the past two weeks, and that is what we say, even though our tongues are very small, has great impact. It is equally true what our Savior has said, that you can tell what's in a person's heart by what they say. Uh, one very young man, educated in a, an ultra-reformed theological context, read me the riot act as I dared to suggest that all people, including Secretary Hillary Clinton, were loved by God unconditionally. Now, I think that by definition, agape love has to be unconditional or it isn't real love. So that's really the essence of my argument. Uh, but this young man, as very young people are wont to do, didn't humbly inquire of me for clarity or wonder if there was something he might need to learn, uh, and he basically just stated how right he was at age 22, and how wrong I was, and how ignorant and how sad his heart was that I had dared to venture into this turf in the first place. And as I found myself honestly irritated with the guy, um, I realized that what really agitated me was that he reminded me of me. Um, God may have forgiven my many foolish, youthful speaking moments, but the DVR in my mind can play back those moments at just about any time. And, I, and it dawned on me that right there, that's where the scriptures say is the beginning of wisdom. It's not in the moment where I think I'm right and they're wrong, but it's where I realize I'm equally as prone and probably have been as foolish. It's the humility that we bring to the discussion of life and brokenness and all these things that demonstrates and should encourage us that we are perhaps on the brink of wisdom. So it was a bittersweet moment for me. I realized what a, I have to find a new adjective, hold on a second, and what a not nice kid I was, a young person, and at the same time, thank you, Brooks, for that encouragement. Filter caught that one. Um, but at the same time, sort of being encouraged that, wow, finally at 51, I, I may be seeing things accurately for the first time in my life. Now, we've spent the last two weeks in James uh, teaching about the power and the possibilities that exist through the use of our tongues. We've been sufficiently warned about what we can potentially do, both good and bad, and last week, we heard with real clarity from Brooks uh, that in using our tongues for good, we are actually glorifying God, not only in the byproduct of our speech, but in the very act itself, that we have been given speech as a means of 
emulating as a means of demonstrating, of glorifying God is seen in us. We were created in his image, and we've been given great opportunity to do so. We were created in God's image so he can be seen in us, and through the very act of speaking, we can speak life. And Pastor Brooks did a fabulous job of showing us key components to taming the tongue. Now, James is going to transition here into another important method of taming the tongue, or what we would call using the tongue for God's glory. And today we're going to look at how to root our speech in divine wisdom. Uh, In his context, James, the brother of Jesus, is now referencing specific instances in the church whereby people who claim to be wise or claim to be leaders, whether they were actual leaders or self-appointed leaders, as is often the case, they showed by their speech that the wisdom they brought, quote-unquote, from God, as they boasted, wasn't actually from God. Now, this still happens. Perhaps your church experience has lent itself towards this type of thing, where people would say, God spoke to me and blank. Now, when any time somebody uses the preamble to their discussion with you that the Lord spoke to them from on high, that they've had this moment of clarity and God spoke to them, um, it is possible that God has moved in their heart and spoken to them in some way. But when they say, listen, there's no discussing this, there's no working through this, you have no right to question me now, um, don't touch God's anointed, when they begin to push back When you wonder whether or not what they really heard was from the Lord, that ought to be, as James would say, your first clue that something is not right. If someone claims to be right because they heard from heaven and you disagree and then automatically get categorized as abusive or spiritually insensitive or evil, there is a problem. So James starts in verse 13 by saying this, or really asking this question, Who is wise and understanding among you? All right, so he wants to say, you know, if we're going to really discern who the wise and understanding amongst us are, who are they? And the answer is, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. We'll get back to the whole concept of meekness a little later in our message today. But it was King Solomon who wrote that there are basically two types of people, wise and foolish. And in many places in the Proverbs, you'll see one key distinction between a wise person and a foolish person. And so I'll look to Proverbs, and and let's take a quick peek at some of Solomon's wisdom for us. Proverbs 11, 14, where there is no guidance of people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there's safety. Proverbs 15, 22, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Proverbs 24, 6, for by wise guidance you can wage war, and in an abundance of counselors there is victory. You see the common denominator to wisdom? It's getting counsel from other people. Now, before I even launch into how James is going to describe these two types of quote-unquote wisdom, uh, I would say that it has been my experience as a pastor in not only my own heart, and getting a front row seat to my own foolishness. But, you know, as a pastor, I'm somebody that somebody would come to in those moments and say, hey, what do you think? I'm in this place. I'm in a little bit of a spot. That's one of the purposes of having pastors and shepherds, elders in your church, 
is that when you do get in a tight spot and you need some counsel, you go there. So I can say that I have seen over the years some patterns and, and really foolish people, and foolish people by definition are emotionally immature, no matter the age. I mean, I've seen them at 22 and I've seen them at 62. My dad used to say, you can have 30 years of experience or you can have one year of experience 30 times. And so there are foolish people at age 62 who just haven't quite figured it out still. So emotionally immature people rarely get advice before they make decisions because they fear being perceived as weak or they're afraid to be told something that will keep them from getting what they want in the first place. These people rarely seek out counsel from others before making a decision. And as a result, they're like sailboats without a rudder blown back and forth by the wind, and living out of control the entire time. And I would say that their enemy is their pride. It is what is keeping them from finding direction, from getting clear guidance from God, their pride. Wise people, in my experience, which would be someone who is mature regardless of the years they've lived, I've met really wise people who are teenagers and really foolish people who are older. I've met really wise older people, and one of the things that always strikes me about really wise older people is they don't really know that they're wise. They're sort of dumbfounded that you want to know anything they think, which only, of course, makes you want to know more of what they think. Wise people already know they are weak in the grand scheme of things, certainly compared to God. And they ask advice from everyone that will talk to them. These folks don't see getting counsel as a challenge to their personal power or an indication of stupidity. They recognize that they can't possibly see the entire playing field and know others offer different perspectives that will ultimately help them. And consequently, they make very few mistakes and see very few occasions where they look back in regret regret, and their humility is their secret weapon. Their humility, their willingness to ask anyone and everyone questions as if they don't already know the answers. See, it's this breakdown, foolish and wise, that James is going to take part in James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. He's going to now say, here are the characteristics of foolish wisdom or wise wisdom. It sounds like a redundancy, but in reality, some people, and you've got to recognize that he's speaking in uh, almost sarcasm by saying this kind of wisdom. I mean, it's not really wisdom at all. So today, I want to take a look at a couple different types of wisdom, and by virtue of what the text gives us, I want to call the first one hellish wisdom. Hellish wisdom is uh, polluted by pride. Hellish wisdom. Now, before you think I'm being extra special harsh today, let's read the passage together. Verse 14, James 3. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast or be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Hence the hellish reference. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, There will be disorder in every vile practice. As Pastor Brooks mentioned last week, our problem isn't a words problem, it's a heart problem. 
our mouths don't need to be washed out with soap. Our hearts need to be washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. But once again, James is going to point out that if the gospel is not taking root in parts of our hearts, we will begin to see evidence of that in ways, in ways in what we say, in what we do. And in, in that way, he's saying, here is what speech looks like if it is foolish, boastful, and without any insight gained from others. Here are the characteristics of hellish wisdom. Earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic, it produces jealousy, it is characterized by selfish ambition or driven by it. In the life of somebody who would be quote-unquote hellishly wise, there's going to be disorder and vile practice. Now, these characteristics all have in common that they are evidence of a heart that is finding life in other things. Oftentimes, when we are at our foolish worst, we are looking to earthly and unspiritual things to satisfy our souls. And the problem is that our hearts are set on earthly, unspiritual things. Our souls can't possibly find the satisfaction that they're craving, and so by nature, it produces all sorts of unhealthy characteristics. D.A. Carson writes about James's context and the spiritual leaders who were so-called wise. James is confronting them, and Carson says these so-called leaders probably called their envy zeal. But while zeal is good, this zeal was not really from God's spirit, for it was not characterized by meekness. This was disguised envy. What James describes as selfish ambition, they may have called standing for the truth or keeping our group pure. The term James uses for it could also be translated party spirit, for they were forming groups or parties rather than standing for the unity of the church. This is another thing I've seen In my own life, and I've seen it in the broken lives of the people who I've had the privilege of sharing church life with, and that is people who are wounded very quickly divide everybody into camps. People who are wounded want to know who's on my side, who's on your side, whose side are you on, mine or theirs. And and over the years, I've kind of had to decide to tell people, I'm not going to be on anybody's side right now, all right? I'm not going to be pulled into your neurosis. I'm not going to be forced to create a party spirit where you're in their party and they're in your party. And this is obviously what you see playing out on the national stage in our country right now. Are you in this party or are you in that party, okay? Because you're in neither of those parties, let's start a third party. And now we're never going to have a party because none of us get along anymore. So it's, it's kind of sort of crazy that we're being forced, pigeonholed, and that there are people who are so-called leaders that are going to tell you how you should vote. And I would tell you that applying these principles of wisdom are, are the people that you would say are leaders in your life and in your heart, are they people that would demonstrate characteristics that would be considered godly characteristics? Or are the standards you and I have set in life really been the standards that have been presented to us by the culture around us? I had a A bit of a moment in a time I was spending with the Lord this week in prayer and reading. And I realized as I was coming face to face with something that was really hurting 
inside my soul that I had the, the distinct problem, and it's not new, but for whatever reason, it was refreshing in my mind that this was really the root problem I was experiencing, was that I had set in my heart a standard for what I thought beautiful was, and in reality, it wasn't God's standard. Let me read the scripture that I came across and then give you a thought or two as it pertains to our subject of hellish wisdom. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone, you, uh, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each in accordance according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. If you have a church background, it's likely that at some point in your church Christian experience, you've had a struggle with a particular besetting sin, or you just got caught doing something, and somebody quoted Romans 12, 2 at you. We're not supposed to conform to the standards of this world. Back in the 80s, it was Jimmy Swaggart telling us, that we shouldn't listen to Christian rock and roll because that was a worldly thing. In every generation, there's somebody that comes along and wants to determine whether or not what you are doing in, within the culture in which you live is a worldly standard or not. Now, the standards of this world aren't just the moral standards of purity or socially acceptable behavior. More in play in this context of Romans is the thought of humbly knowing who you are in God's sight by resetting your standards for what makes someone important or valuable. If your standards are the world's standards, then you will only feel validated or valued if you are beautiful, famous, wealthy, or powerful. So this is relevant to our discussion today because when we talk about wisdom and whether or not what we're saying and whether or not the people we're looking to in our lives are really wise people... We've got to take some internal looks at our own souls to say, why, why do we feel the way we feel, either about ourselves or others? What is driving us? And when we're denied access to the things that we hold as standards for greatness, whether it be beauty, fame, wealth, or power, do we react in such a way as to demonstrate that we are really jealous? Do we begin to experience what James is saying in practice, which is our speech becomes filled with things that would indicate selfish ambition and disorder and vile practice, things of, uh, where we're, we're involved in the, in the actions of hurting others if we're not affirmed as we think we should be or we don't see others giving us what we believe we are due. When life becomes about us and not about others or Christ, we can all of a sudden then begin to see coming out of our mouths things that might even sound like wisdom, but really are greater evidence of our own need for a deepening fellowship with Christ. There's something broken, something wrong in there. Hellish wisdom is polluted by pride, you see, our need for exaltation is what keeps us from asking people for help. Our desire to be seen as wise, our desire to be seen as powerful, our desire to be seen as successful keeps us from humbly going before others 
And there is no place where that is more evident is when somebody dares to question you. Particularly if you think you're an expert in some particular area. It's sad that I can say in my own experience, in my own life, that I haven't even had to be an expert to take offense when somebody questions me. Uh, One example, I can look back to my 26 years of marriage. Last week while Carol and I were gone, we celebrated our 26th anniversary. That's not an applause line, please don't. Um, What Carolyn and I uh, have come to a place of is really enjoying that we have different perspectives on things. And sometimes that's good, and sometimes it can delay decision-making because we're trying to figure out what's best for both of us, and we believe God's guiding the two of us. But when we were younger, there were many, many a conflict as it related to me not getting my way. So I would say, hey, I think we ought to do this. And recently, my memory was triggered to a specific incident many moons ago. Uh, Carol and I are making some decisions about refinancing our house, and we're making all these decisions, and, and she and I decided I was going to go talk to my brother-in-law, David, who's a financial wizard and pretty wealthy. Seemed like a good decision. Well, early on in our life, Carolyn would ask this question. I would say, hey, I think we should do this, and she would say, why don't we talk to somebody else? Now, she didn't say what I heard. What I heard was, Why don't we talk to somebody who knows what the heck they're talking about? See, I heard her tell me, you're not an expert. And she was probably right, even if she were saying that. But it was insulting and offensive to me. Why can't I be able to, why can't you just take my word for it? Why don't you listen to me? Can't you hear in that kind of speech, in that kind of verbalization of my inner feelings, All of the deep insecurities, can't you hear in that somebody who's saying, I only see myself as important if you will take my word for it. That just demonstrates a person who's really having a difficult, having a difficult problem, having a difficult time adjusting to reality. And that is, I'm not an expert at anything, really. And I'm sinful on top of that, which means that I should be able to face the reality of you challenging my brokenness with a certain degree of honesty. But because of my pride, because I want to be self-sufficient, because I want to be seen as wonderful, you will get the backdraft of my sin because hellish wisdom is polluted by pride. The good news for us is that there is an opportunity for us to tap into God's heavenly wisdom, and that's because heavenly wisdom is saturated with humility. This is what I can tell you. I know you've experienced it at some point in your life where you come across somebody who's older and you just go, oh my gosh, they are so wise. But it isn't because they walked into a room and went, attention, wisdom has walked into the room. In fact, that kind of person is the kind of person you're like, all right, talk to the hand. We're not actually going to hear anything you say. I guess talk to the hand sort of dates me, so I'm sorry, millennial people. But verses 17 and 18 of James 3 says this, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. When a heart is finding life in Christ, these are the characteristics that result 
from a person espousing heavenly wisdom. There's a purity to it. There's a peaceableness to it. There's a gentleness to it. There's a reasonableness to it. So when you find somebody who's just off their rocker, unreasonable, you have to know at some level that's not from God. There's a mercifulness to it. There's an impartiality to it. There's a sincerity. And James begins by saying at the start of this third section of James 3 that wise and understanding people show it through works done in the meekness of wisdom. Isn't that an interesting saying, the meekness of wisdom? See, because when you and I think of somebody that we exalt as super wise, we're, we tend to exalt them. So when we think of our own wisdom, we're thinking, I have exalted wisdom for you, instead of meek wisdom. Meekness is the opposite of aggression. And in James's context here, he's talking to people who are being aggressive in their response to criticism, in their response to questioning. Whether it is Moses in the Old Testament or our Savior Jesus in the New Testament, one of the things we see is that godly people don't respond angrily to false accusations. In fact, they often don't respond at all. And it's that lack of a need for self-defense that James is propping up as an example of a person that's full of wisdom. And when we don't rest in God's love for us in Christ, we are quick to jump to our defense. It becomes evident that we're unable to humbly trust him when we are quick to defend our precious reputations. When I react angrily to criticism, it's evidence of my over-reliance upon others' opinions of me. If I'd humbly relied upon Christ's opinion of me, I would regularly not be so prone to defend myself. I'd be secure. Resting in him secure. This is where heavenly wisdom begins to take root. James says in James 1.5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. You see, in these passages, including Solomon's charge in Proverbs 1, 5 through 7, let the wise hear and increase in learning. Let the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Wise speech Speech that glorifies Christ, first and foremost, requires humility. It it requires humility both in seeing my need for Christ to work in the deepest areas of my heart, but also it's obvious in my seeking that it's something that I have to humbly pursue. And you can see in James's declaration and Solomon's declaration that we are called to a pursuit of wisdom. And there's a reason for that. And that is if we didn't have to pursue it, if it was just ours, we'd claim it as our own. We would most certainly in our human nature go, you know how brilliant I am? Let me give you some of my wisdom. Let me go ahead and impart to you that which I have gained in my many years of experience. Poet Ralph Waldo Emerson said, what you do speaks so loudly that I cannot hear what you say. I love that. Our actions do speak more loudly than our words. Jesus said it like this. We're a tree 
and you can tell what kind of tree you are by your fruits. Hence, when James is saying that the wisdom from above is full of good fruits and uses the terminology, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So when a so-called person of wisdom or leadership in your life or specifically in a church says with their words, I want to protect the church, but their actions are ultimately tearing it down, you know you're dealing with wisdom that is demonic. The actions of destruction show their intent. True disciples of Jesus are more concerned about communicating his love through speech, glorifying his character in the way they communicate what they're wisely sharing. It was Jesus who said in John 15, verses 8 through 11, by this my Father is glorified. And this isn't, what we're, isn't this what we're talking about when we talk about having speech? We're taming the tongue is not just to tame the tongue, it's so that people can see the Creator in our life-giving speech. Jesus says, by this my Father is glorified. So if your compulsion, and it should be as a Christian, is that others would see Christ in you, this would be a moment to pay attention. He wants you to bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus is calling you and I to a humble reliance upon him that would enable us to receive from him heavenly wisdom that we could impart to others humbly and meekly. And in turn, people would not look at you and me and go, wow, you're amazingly wise. But they would say, wow, you serve an amazingly wise God. And in my life, it's not uncommon for somebody to say something that is, seems like a backhanded compliment. They'll say, I learned more about the grace of God by watching your life than anybody I've ever known. And you go, thank you, I guess. But it is true. I mean, I think about it in my life. I look at me and I go, I can't believe I'm a pastor. I mean, that's still hard for me to get over 20 years later. If God can use me, then he can certainly use anybody. And that would encourage you, I would imagine, Recently, I was reading John Bloom, who writes for Desiring God, said this, the secret to freedom from slavery to selfish ambition is to keep looking to Jesus. When our focus is on ourselves and each other, we begin to compare and compete, which leads us into a black hole of demonic evil. And he references James 3. Looking to Jesus reminds us that loving and serving each other just as Jesus has loved and served us is the path to full joy. Application of the gospel at a deep level demands that we seek wisdom. We talk about the gospel a lot around here, and this is the reality that we have been made right in Christ, and that's the only way we are made right with God, justified to be in his presence, to be at fellowship and in fellowship with him. And in that fellowship, we must ask the Holy Spirit to do the deep surgery in our broken and sinful hearts. We need to find comfort each day in the pursuit of God's presence and wisdom. And that means finding time in your schedule for prayer and study of His Word. Not because you're trying to check off a bunch of boxes that make you look spiritual, but because you know down deep inside, apart from the wisdom given to you by God's Word and His Spirit, you are helpless 
It means as well setting aside perhaps some of my recreational time to make discovery of divine wisdom a priority, which means I may have to get rid of Netflix so I'm not binging away four hours a day in reruns and then saying, I just don't have any time for my devotional life. I don't have any time to seek wisdom. It means kneeling before God daily and crying out to him for a life that is full of him and truly humbling ourselves to recognize that much of what comes out of our mouth is indicative of a deep need in our own hearts for his presence and his power. We come to the communion table each week and it is supposed to be not just a symbol or a meaningful experience, a sacrament of what Jesus has done for us, but the, the act itself of coming to the table is supposed to be a metaphor for our relationship with God. We're invited freely. If we're humble enough, we're invited freely to the table. And so when we come each week, we come recognizing that we're entering in again to the presence of the Lord by his grace. And it's in that presence that we can find help for our broken hearts and healing for those areas of deep need that would then manifest themselves as arrogance and pride and a lack of love for others and, a, and an abundance of selfishness. I conclude today with words from somebody that I know Pastor Brooks and I think is one of the wisest that walks planet Earth right now. His latest and last book before he's almost virtually completely disabled is called Weakness is the Way. And he's the great theologian J.I. Packer. And he writes this. The truth, however, is that in many respects, and certainly in spiritual matters, we are all weak and inadequate, and we need to face it. Sin, which disrupts all relationships, has disabled us across the board. We need to be aware of our limitations and to let this awareness work in us humility and self-distrust and a realization of our helplessness on our own. Thus, we may learn our need to depend on Christ, our Savior and Lord, at every turn of the road, to practice that dependence as one of the constant habits of our heart, and hereby to discover what Paul discovered before us. When I am weak, then I am strong. Let us pray. Dear Father, thank you for your kindness, for extending grace to us, and thank you so much for the reality of the gospel that we are broken and yet we can freely come to your presence in our time of need to receive help because we will never be holy enough to enter into your presence and get the help we need. We need to see you. We need to know you. There are places in our broken hearts that are longing for healing And in the absence of that healing, lead us to try to get the world's stuff to to pacify or to numb it or drug it in some way. So some of us have developed habits, sinful patterns in our life to cope with the pain that exists that needs your healing touch. And I would pray that you would do the root work, Father, that would produce the fruit 
that would demonstrate not just behavioral compliance with someone who's really in fellowship with you and really gathering in their heart and mind the realities of the gospel, that we are your beloved daughters and sons, that we are your precious children. Oh, Lord, break through those things that keep us from seeing that, that we might know the freedom of self-forgetfulness, that we might know the freedom of joy by just being your children. Lord, would you grant your church this blessing that you might be glorified in what we say and do. We pray in Jesus' name.